Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Alex James. Alex, how are you doing? Well, thanks. Well, thanks, Al. How are you over there in the U.S.? I'm doing very well. And you're in the Sydney area. Where are you today? Yeah, Sydney, Australia. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for making time. I'm really excited to have this conversation because you and I connected about six months ago. They're in Sydney. They're in Australia. And then you came over in January to yeah. the Bow Conference. And you have an uncommonly thorough and inspiring narrative around workforce planning and what I would call capacity management. But you also talk about effort management. Can you describe you know, what you've been up to and you know, how you landed in this world of effort management? Yeah, sure. Look, thanks very much, Al. I've got to say it's a real privilege to be here and it's great to be part of the FAL community and, you know, participate as it continues to grow from strength to strength. It was six months ago that we first met in Sydney, as you said, and I was quite taken by your passion and the people analytics and the good it can bring to the workplace. And I was really encouraged by the support you gave for what I was doing. So look, my background is a little unconventional compared to many's if there is such a thing. I'm an engineer by education and many years of practice behind it, and I'm proud of it. But look, out over time, I became increasingly fed up with the carnage of poor workforce management and resource management, as we call it in the project world, where we continually have people working late and under a lot of pressure and then scratching around for things to do, which I saw as just completely avoidable. If only there was a bit more discipline and forward planning, which tech ideally is suited to help with. So I couldn't help myself and looked into it. And I came up with a theory about managing effort because isn't effort like at the heart of our precious resource? And I put it into software for project-based enterprises. And out of that, about two years ago, I was also asked to contribute to the ISO standards for workforce management, which has been a super journey. Maybe we'll come back to. But, you know, Al, the more I learn and discover, the more I see this intersection between strategic and operational workforce planning and allocation and people analytics that isn't quite joined up as well as it could be. And, you know, as a result, there's this suboptimal workforce outcomes that are generally accepted as just being the cost of doing business, which for me, on one hand, I find to be super frustrating and so unfortunate. But on the other, it's quite excites me as a challenge and opportunity. So I find myself being drawn further into this world because for some unknown reason, it keeps gnawing at me. And I find myself exploring further down a rabbit hole where there's this rich vein of untapped insight that really can stop the carnage, I believe. And that's why I'm here. Again, even just in that introduction, it gets me excited because you're bringing a very tactical approach to something that historically has been esoteric for many HR leaders and those outside of HR. It's like, you know, workforce planning has historically sat in talent acquisition, yet you and I have connected on the fact that it's really about looking at how work gets done, which is going to lead into my question. You and I connected on this notion of, in my language, capacity, but you also talk about workload, which I would put as a synonym in many respects for you know, what can people do within a fixed amount of time, and that informs their well-being yeah. in, in terms and yeah. form. You know how much they can actually get done with you know finite resources and time and all those things. So, can you share just a little bit about how you put these pieces together so leaders can understand you know the work required and you know what the headcount might be and what other resources might be applied to get things done? I certainly can. And before I probably get into the 
my hand up and say, you know, I loved your conversation with Stacey Harris from Cedar Sierra. And related to that is that, you know, it was a great conversation where what I took away is that there's a need to be, have this closer connection between people analytics and operational decision-making. Analytics around well-being needs to be more relevant, which really resonated with me because I'm hoping that our conversation today is going to explore how you can predict workforce waste shortfall and excess and provide, you know, really actionable insights around effort management so you can get the better results. I want to emphasize that point with Stacey and draw a connection. The idea that we have historically, particularly with COVID-19 running rampant around the globe, we have been very siloed in how we've selected the HR technologies. We have thought predictive analytics being let's predict turnover, which has kind of been a fixed mindset. What I hear you saying is if we can predict the amount of work and amount of people that we need to do that work from a different dimension other than skills, which is important, but also just the amount of time. And again, that speaks to your engineering background. And I think it's much, much needed. And frankly, it's a blind spot for many. So anyway, I just wanted to emphasize that point. So please. Yeah, and I think I'll come to the, the effort as the, the unit of measure and the, the different types of effort. You know, a little bit of what I said before, if you, if you manage an organisation of 100, 500 or 5,000 people and you know you're not managing that workforce well, it results in low utilisation eroding margins or poor quality product delivered late by stressed people. And if your audience are familiar with this, they're not alone because only 7% of managers believe their workforces are optimised. And it's a tough problem because even the world's largest builders of skyscrapers admitted to me that they have real trouble managing the bench of their staff. And as a result, it's no wonder that 25% of the reasons projects fail is due to poor resource management. Well, the consultants accept 80% utilisation. And a particular concern is to this audience is that, you know, one in four workers feel burnt out 44% of, of the time. And that's a worry because we know continuous stress is harmful. It raises blood pressure, causes depression and early death in some instances. But for even for some of the tougher managers, stress also results in absenteeism and loss of productivity. One study indicated that just every 1% increase in overtime results in only a 0.9% increase in productivity. So what's the point? Yet sadly, this connection and the potential contribution of good health and well-being to profit is poorly understood. You know, so Al, what is going on? And, you know, I have a perspective I'd like to share, but if you've got a view on where there's this disconnect? I have probably too many views on it, but what I will say on this to, to answer your question pointedly is, yes, the disconnect is happening historically and it emphasizes what McKinsey's been talking about, Josh Person's been talking about, Mercer, Willis, the need for new management models. So we've historically had you know, operations right. doing kind of planning, resource planning. We have HR trying to do workforce planning. We have digital transformation group going over here. They're all interplaying, but they're not interplaying consciously. So we have to bring that together. And I think there's a huge opportunity, particularly given what's happened with the global health crisis. Before I let you comment on that, I want to call out something, is that you're using new language, and I would say more appropriate language. We talk about well-being, you know, engagement has historically been very important. It's been prioritized. We've all but agreed over the last couple months that it's about the health and well-being of the employee population and those people who might be exiting the organization. So how are we going to take care of those human beings? And also you're talking about 
effort, you're talking about workload. These are very basic terms that HR and others have not used, have not used across the organization. So I think they're, and I cite a Chinese proverb, the beginning of wisdom is calling things by their right name. So what I hear you doing is calling things by their right name, speaking in very plain language. It's just going to be a good leverage point to bring people together. It's like, hey, you're not talking HR speak. You're just talking normal, normal language. And I completely agree. And from the first day I've seen, met you, and every day you talk about that Chinese definition of, of words as being, and that, that really resonated me, with me because I've had to work so hard to define what I feel like I've discovered. So my perspective on the causes of this is that, yeah, there is a groundswell of well-being and health awareness initiatives, and, you know, Pafau is testament to that. Sure, shoring up people's resilience to stress is invaluable for reducing impact, no doubt. However, isn't, like, the best way to prevent harm achieved by removing the cause? And what I hear missing from the conversation so often is the control of the biggest cause, which, as you just said, is, is workload. Because, you know, around 40% of stress comes from workload. And when we talk about well-being, shouldn't we also be first thing we think about is, well, how are we managing workload? Yeah, we're talking, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is such a huge opportunity because let me put a point on it. What I see in the marketplace, just had two conversations on this front this morning. It's like, where are the priorities of CHROs and, and others? And there's a bunch of research that's emerging that's shedding light on that. But the questions that you ask in such research is going to influence the insight that comes out of it. And I'm, I'm not seeing workload. I'm not seeing capacity. I am yeah. seeing some relationships to it because we've had you know, several people over the past few weeks shed light on the fact that people are like stressed at home. You know, they have kids to take care of, they have, you know, homeschooling, they have meals to make, you know, and they have work to do. So meetings are getting shorter, they're working longer, they're working odder hours and and all that. But they're still being asked to do sometimes more work. Yeah. I hear a lot of stories where a lot of people are working longer and harder during this period. And meanwhile, they're laying off people. So, you know, if we can get our hands around workload, would it be out of line to think about, well, how about everyone do a 30-hour work week and we actually retain more people and create more capacity for people to get work done and live more livable lives? But rarely is that conversation happening. So what I'm hearing you say is that you want to facilitate that conversation with, with data. Is that right? That's exactly right. It is very difficult. If you do want to pull that load down. It's very difficult to understand what does it mean for your delivery? What does it mean for your financial outcomes? What does it mean for people's well-being? Which, thank you, plays beautifully into what I think I've, I've uncovered and I you know, want to share. Yeah, well, speak more into it because you, when we talk about well-being, you're not just putting it out there as a nice thing to do. You just mentioned that there is financial risk and opportunity that you want to elevate. So it's truly yeah. a multidisciplinary approach. Can you speak to that? So let me dig into one of the insights around workload, which then leads immediately into those, into those other outcomes. So people will respond to excess workload by working longer hours at a faster pace. Very rarely do you stay at the same pace and work longer, which reduces the vital recovery time. And I find it really interesting that there's a lot of talk about longer hours, but not so much about pace. Mm. And the combination of these two is like what I call intensity. And so if organizations want better people outcomes, it seems crucial that they have better control of intensity and that driving workload as we're, as we're discussing. 
But that's not easy because I believe people outcomes are just one of three outcomes that organisations are continually wrestling to balance every day. And to the point, because to be successful, organisations must also achieve delivery outcomes, like delivering their product and services on time, and financial outcomes like utilisation that drive operating margin and profits. And I believe this continuous balancing of these outcomes is probably an organisation's most fundamental mission. And managing people's effort is at the heart of it. Organisations or leaders might have a bias to one of these outcomes, but they can't maximise one by breaking the others. You can't deliver every opportunity or commitment if you have to work your people 110 hours a week. And I think even Elon Musk would agree with that. You, you might have some debate based on what's happening here in California right now, but please continue. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So look, if these outcomes define your success, imagine the power if we're able to forecast them. And the problem is that conventional workforce analysis calculates just the gap between supply and demand. But mm-hmm. this isn't going to tell you how much you'll be able to deliver or what intensity you'll ask your people to work, or as you said, what utilisation is going to result in. So imagine if we were able to take workforce planning up a notch and imagine if we could do this by forecasting a workforce's performance, by reporting at all levels and by recommending interventions that ultimately optimise. Wouldn't this provide a big step towards better balancing of outcomes and better workload control? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Easy answer. <laughs> you know, if, I, if I might just jump in, because if I'm a listener, if I'm a head of talent, CHR, I'm like, Alex, you're making perfect sense. Yeah. I'm just like, but I don't have the budget for, you know, something, you know, big shift adoption of a new technology. Are you talking about utilizing existing data in different ways are you you what would be the solution are would it be a process change it would it be a technology that would have to be adopted to get the insight that you're talking about what intervention needs to take place to get to a better understanding of intensity and workload and, and so forth so for the the things i'm about to discuss organizations essentially need to know how many people they need how many people they have and how many people they're using on specific activity. Pretty simple, really. And not all, but most organisations know this to varying degrees. And at one extreme, you have scheduled workers in a Kronos system, and you have your HHCM, so they can provide the core inputs, or you might need to pull some of that together manually. But the analysis I'm about to discuss is relatively straightforward if you can just bring those three pieces of of information in of effort which i'll discuss in a moment then we can actually unlock that forecasting reporting and recommending that i talked about well jump in go go into those those three okay the good news is um that i'm pretty sure i've discovered a way and a theorem for managing human effort as we described which predicts the future and recommends these open optimizations So let me explain. Organisations, as I said, that know how many people they have, need and use can produce three profiles of effort called demand, capacity and allocation. This we presented, you know, in hours per day or hours per week or FTEs. And most, interestingly, workforce management analysis uses one or two of these already, but very rarely all three. 
And the intriguing thing is that when we compare demand capacity and allocation with each other, we're able to numerically forecast a workforce's ability, its efficiency, and its intensity. The three things that we need to know to balance the organization. And it's that simple. Just to play that back, demand is the work required to get things done. Capacity is either the amount you have or need to have to get that work done. And And capacity, if I can just articulate, is the tally of people's availability. People's availability. Okay. And how much work that they can get done with that availability. Or just how many hours are they going to turn up in the week, for example. Got it. Got it. And then allocation would be how that talent is allocated? Yeah, so how much work have we handed out, but in a quantified sense. This is particularly of value in the project world where engineers and software designers, you know, are given multiple tasks of, of varying amounts of effort at any one time. They're juggling multiple tasks. Okay, that, that makes sense. All right, thanks for the, the clarification. So yeah. what you're saying now is many organizations look at two dimensions, but not holistically those three dimensions over time. So, you know, they might do it on an event-driven basis and use only two dimensions, but what you're advocating is do this on an ongoing basis with those three dimensions so you can manage the workload in a fluid, agile manner over time. Is that right? Yeah, and I would say these are the core inputs into some higher-order insights as well. Yeah, speak to some of those insights and what, because you mentioned before you can create predictions and then focus appropriate interventions, is that right? We get layer upon layer of of insight. So this relationship between demand capacity and allocation giving us ability, efficiency and intensity is what I call the effort management theorem. And, you know, I had to give it a name and as you say, everything should have a name. So that's where I've got it. (laughs) But I should say that The effort management theorem is, like I just need to qualify, is similar to a lot of workforce analysis, and but I've not seen this circular complete relationship between effort and outcomes presented in this way. Maybe they're they're out there, so I don't want to say that I've invented something completely new, but I I haven't seen it elsewhere. But what we get from the realisation I had quite recently is that not so long ago, I explored other observations and they opened up a deeper level of analysis, and I call this advanced effort management, or AEM. And AEM goes on to initially provide two more insights into future performance. Firstly, and somewhat profoundly, I think, Al, we can now discover opportunities to improve the workforce. Amazingly, AEM is able to calculate workforce predictions for waste, shortfall, excess, over-allocation and the contribution of stretch with additional overtime. So now we can actually see or know the imperfections or inefficiencies which really become opportunities to improve. These opportunities are really exciting because they go on to feed more insights. But is waste shortfall excess resonating with you? Yeah, it, it is. And you know, part of me is thinking again, trying to empathize with listeners. They go, all right, this sounds interesting, but do I need to have an hourly workforce? Do I need to have scrum and agile methodologies in place to, to do this work and get this level of insight? What, what would you say to that type of question? There are three types of workforces. To just a bit of context, there are scheduled workers in retail and hospitals. There are activity-based workers in essentially project world, and there are positional workers, people who are on an org chart and do what they can at work and then kind of go home. 
And for each one of those, there are different degrees of knowing primarily the need. That's what differentiates them. It's pretty standard to know, you know, their availability and it's only one small step to tally their, their allocation. There are pockets of, I would say, you know, I'd say the majority of workforces, you can work out your need, even if you're just adding up the number of people with a similar role in an org chart with positional workers. In the project world, there are some very sophisticated project control people and resource people who can really pump out the numbers. And then at the other extreme, there are like consultancies where the line manager's got absolutely no idea. He's just handing out work left, right and centre. But that's not to say that that can't change. And look, Al, if we talk 20, 30, 50 years time, that's not going to be the norm. The kind of science and the numbers and the assistance of computing is going to bring this together so we can really optimise our workforce. In summary, some organisations could take it up right now. I could take their profiles and do this analysis. Other organisations are going to need to take what they know and sort of consolidate the information into profiles. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And as I'm listening to you, I'm like, all right, you know, what are the barriers to adopting this type of approach? Because it, it makes perfect sense. However, if I'm in HR, the language that you're talking has not been, you know, my normal language. It's not necessarily maybe in my comfort zone. However, we're all uncomfortable right now. And there's a massive disruption going on in the world. And I reflect on what Dr. John Boudreau, Professor John Boudreau said almost 20 years ago, when I had the good fortune of working in a cohort with him right. and colleagues. He was saying that the what the world is lacking right now are mental models. In other words, a, a way to think about this that people of a leadership team, for example, can get behind. It's like, this is how we're approaching the problem. So what I'm hearing you offering up is a way to approach the problem in 2020 and beyond, given digital transformation, the need for workforce planning, the need to strategize around return to work, return to workplace, you know, whatever you want to call it. So is that where you see it, you know, fitting in is with organizations who are seeking like a new way of thinking and, and addressing how to right size their workforce over time? Yeah, so the, the thing that resonated when you just said that is that there's a, there's a model, a mental model. There's actually a mathematical model. There's three inputs that get three outputs and I can scale up and we can go here for hours about it. But there's a rock solid theorem that explains how we can, how we can get, predict these outcomes. But I do know this is new. It's new to HR. I think the people analytics type people and all the feedback I've had from it, they get it straight away, particularly when I can present it in a graphical form. But there is any, anything new takes time to absorb, to be understood, appreciated and adopted. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> and usually it's the first movers or, or you know, early adopters. But at the same time, you know, there is obviously, you know, again, this disruption happening. So as organizations workforce plan or go through these new decision-making processes, who do you think can or should be taking the lead on what you're talking about? Should it be HR? Should it be operations? Should it be transformation, whether it be digital transformation, business transformation, all the above. It might be depends. I mean, I don't know, but who's the uh, ideal kind of candidate to, to run this? I think the people with the skill sets are your workforce planners and your people analytics people, because there are numbers and it takes concepts to get. But who in the business should own this? 
is one that I'm actually going to keep out of because the traditional business model with function units of HR operations and finance all being their own thing and this sort of work belonging to one actually fails it. It misses the point because this analysis sits bang in the middle of all three. Who should own it? That depends on the leadership. You know, the CEO should own it. I don't know. You know, again, this resonates obviously with me because I believe the world needs to shift. I, I talked a couple of weeks ago when I presented at the Pavel conference around perpetual work design, also work strategy, not workforce planning, but work strategy, yeah. strategizing yeah. how work gets done. So, you know, given that, you know, I would hope that there's an open mindedness to new ways of thinking, new approaches that you're talking about, you know, no matter who leads it, you know, I see it could be a chief of staff. I see it could be, you know, not only chief of staff of HR, but, you know, maybe of the CEO. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it could be, absolutely. So this is where I want to start landing. As we move forward in time, and again, yeah, the global health crisis, we can't ignore. I, you know, it's almost cliche now that it presents, you know, opportunity. And I don't want to, you know, be slight, you know, the challenges that, you know, people are having and, and the suffering that's happening. I do want to just offer up this question. Why should this, in your words, in your view, be a priority right now? I, I have my own ideas, but you know, why should it be, if I'm a listener, I'm a head of people analytics or you know, talent or, or CHRO or, or like, you know, why should I be, hey, gosh, you know, this is maybe a, something I should prioritize to in turn guide my downstream decisions regarding workforce size and, and so forth? The higher end functions then provides is it gives us a view of the cost impact of these inefficiencies. It gives us a reporting up through the organisation from layer to layer because managers need to manage their their pockets. But most importantly, it goes on to provide seven recommendations for optimization. And whether an organisation is in the mode of business as usual and wants to eke out that one or two percent improvement, which could make a huge difference to the bottom line in a continuous efficiency drive, or if it's suffering a major disruption, like in before a emergent acquisition or before a global pandemic, the advanced analysis will tell you what is going to happen in the future. And COVID is no exception. It's quite often that I don't talk to utilisation with organisations because everyone five months ago was just flat out. I talk to workload and ability to deliver. But the coin has completely flipped and the, unfortunately the work is, while the work's plummeting, we're looking at lower and lower utilisation and looking at no longer intensity but the utilisation question. And so this sort of analysis will tell you how far you can tip and stretch the triangle towards lower utilisation before you get to some breaking point. And with this analysis out of the intervention, some of the first things you might want to do is look at what people can transfer from one part of the business to the other where there is surplus and there's a deficit. So there's a whole whole range of things you can do before you actually look to an ultimate unfortunate state of maybe downsizing. So as we wrap up, I mean, just to summarize, and I want to make sure that I and our listeners more importantly understand this, is you can do a lot with existing data. It could be just looking at it differently. However, if there is additional data, this approach could inform what data is actually going to deliver the insight that you're talking about, which in turn will 
perform the action. Because right now, you know, yes, there's well-being surveys and similar surveys going out. There's a place for that. Fantastic. But in a more systematic operational sense, there's still in many organizations a blind spot. And this is a way to fill that blind spot. Is that right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it, it comes back to Stacy's point about being able to provide that connection between the data and the people analytics mm-hmm. and providing the actionable insights that drive the operations and lead you to a more optimized workforce. Well, it's obvious I'm a fan of what you're doing and how you're doing it. I really appreciate you sharing because I think it's an important viewpoint. I think it's a it's something that, again, people need to be open-minded, that our language needs to shift, the way we look at the workforce, workload, well-being. It's obviously a priority, but we haven't really focused on it effectively over time. So, yeah, again. There's a big opportunity there, yeah. So thank you for what you do. Thanks for sharing and keep up the great work. How can people learn more about what you're doing? So you can come to resrodel.com, resrodel meaning the resource role model, and look at our advanced effort management, effort management page, and some of the offerings, the way that people can get involved. Or they can contact me, you know, by email at alex.james at resrodel.com. That's R-E-S-R-O-D-E-L. Simple enough. All right. Well, hope to see you soon. Yeah, I hope this you know, lets up and we can get together in person before too long. Until then, you know, please be safe and all the best. Thanks very much, Al. Thanks for the time. It's been really great. Yeah, likewise. Take care. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.